Today's episode is brought to you by Global Specialized Safety Incorporated. You can find them at globalssinc.com. That's globalssinc.com for all of your safety needs. Safe by choice, not by chance. Global Specialized Safety is veteran-owned and operated. Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. Good morning, everybody, and thank you again for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. Today on the show, we have Tyler Ledford coming to me from the United States. Hoorah! He's a USMC veteran. Thanks for joining me today, Tyler. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you on. Uh, let's talk about Flanders Fields. That's why we have you on here. So you are the CFO of Flanders Fields. Uh, let's start. What's the mission of Flanders Fields? Yeah, of course. I'm the CFO, one of our um, three officers and co-founders. Um, our mission, is, the, the simple mission is veterans supporting veterans. Um, so we're all um, we're all veterans ourselves. We have many non-veterans on staff, too, based on um, you know, just other um, uh, specialties that they have that, um, you know, have been been great um, to supporting uh, different programs that we're running and um, veterans that we support. Um, but essentially, you know, the, the goal in mind is that, you know, we want to help veterans struggling with a wide range of, um, let's call it, um, you know, post-military or um, adjustment type issues, particularly in the realms of um, PTSD uh, drug and alcohol addiction, and a lot of the things that tend to stem from those, um, including legal issues, housing issues, uh, job issues, um, things like that. So we kind of take a holistic approach depending on the veteran and what issues they're facing. And we, um, you know, t- t- tackle tackle pro- uh, problems one at a time, whether it be, uh, you know, getting them back in school, getting them a job, getting them housed, um, getting them caught up on bills, uh, helping them with legal issues. We really um, want to be an all-inclusive. We don't, um, we don't, uh, you know, uh, you know, leave out any veterans, whether regardless of um, how they were, their type of discharge. Um, we understand that some veterans may have been struggling with uh, substance abuse issues, which led to, um, you know, a less than honorable discharge. Um, but we don't, we don't exclude those guys. Um, we're all inclusive. If you signed your name to serve um and you know sir you know served in any capacity then we're here to we're here to help you any way that we can that is a fucking heartbreaker that they would get a less than honorable discharge because of drug addiction uh, or drug drug use when the reason they're using the drugs in the first place is to deal with trauma Um, absolutely (laughs) and the people that like to be judgmental dicks about that um, let's just say to them, stop being a dick because, <laughs> and, and with the, ju- yeah. well, they made their choices. No, nobody chooses trauma. And when you're drowning, you're going to take any bit of air that you can get. You would suck on the uh, tailpipe when you're drowning mm-hmm. to, to get just something in your lungs, anything. And it's like that with trauma recovery. Um, when you are suffering from PTSD, it is so ugly and like it can be brutal people do take their lives you know suicide happens all the time so if your choice is suicide or drugs those are your choices what would you choose you choose drugs Drugs. so try not to be a dick (laughs) absolutely absolutely you know and i walked that path myself um alcohol was my drug of choice but i mean it got me in some in some trouble towards the end of my active duty career um because I didn't fully, and I didn't fully understand it at the time that that's, that I was dealing with my, my trauma post, um, you know, post combat deployment in Afghanistan. Um, but that's, that's what I was doing. And it led me to making some less than, you know, some poor decisions that got me in trouble. Now, um, it did not lead to a separate class. And, and again, I, hang on, I'm going to, I'm going to stop yep. you there. Cause you're doing the same thing I just said. 
<laughs> you're being yeah. a dick to yourself and yeah. <laughs> by saying, oh, I made some poor decisions. It's like, everybody always says that, but it's, but, but no, you made desperate decisions. You did what you had yeah. to do to just to survive in the moment. So mm-hmm. don't be judgmental on yourself either, man. You can't be a dick to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I try not to be, I'm, I'm notoriously <laughs> kind of, kind of hard on myself, but, uh, you know, just what I'm saying is, you know, I yeah. understand why those guys are making the decisions they are. Um, Absolutely. They're desperate, you know, because uh, I've, I've been there myself. Yeah, as so many of us have. I've um, mm-hmm. been sober just about two years now, um, and I have to be. <laughs> I, I, I yeah, got I got to it's because it's a bloody mess if I'm not. Uh, things exactly. ain't right. Same here. No. Exactly, same here, yeah. So, I mean, I... If, you know, I wanted, you know, I, I, if I wanted any type of happiness in my life, you know, I had to get sober. And if I wanted to recover in any way from the trauma I experienced, I also had to be sober to, to, to do that. Well, that's it. And uh, in this position that I have put myself in, in the veteran community, you know, people occasionally call me for help. And uh, mm-hmm. if I've got a couple drinks downrange, well, that's not good. How am I supposed to yeah. help you with your drinking issues if I'm like, hey, hey, everybody, I'm having a good time? You know, it it, it doesn't work if uh, you you call me and you can hear the uh, uh, ice rattling around in my scotch. Yeah, yeah <laughs> you're, you're exactly right. Exactly right. So yeah, I mean that's a you know so the, really the work the work we're doing as an organization and that I do with Flanders, you know, it has, it has its uh, twofold um, positive impact on me because it, it gives me a reason to, uh, you know, I, by continuing to do this work, I'm continuing to on my path of recovery. Yeah. And you were in Afghanistan, if I remember, right? Correct. Yep. 2010. 2010. Uh, did you ever work with other nations while you were there or was it just, of course Okay. Yeah, I did a lot. Um, the uh, the British Army and uh, Royal Marines quite a bit. Um, we worked uh, some with Canadians, some with um, some other small small countries, and and you know they may even be attached to a larger mission where we didn't even really fully you know realize they were there. Um, but then towards the end of my deployment, we uh, were assisting train the Georgian Army um, quite a bit. That was that that was kind of a mess, but with it. You know, being based in southern Afghanistan, Helmand Province, um, you know, that was the kind of the center of uh, the NATO forces at that time. Um, so there were, you know, country, rep, countries represented all, you know, across the board. Right. Were there any surprises working with other countries? I mean, other than the Georgians? You know, not a whole lot. The The biggest surprise was with the Georgians, kind of um, how out of shape some of those guys were. It seemed like, uh, you know. <laughs> They just, you know, came straight from their day jobs there. That was a little surprising. But um, in turn, you know, I think I think uh, NATO's done a good job in terms of uh, the forces that they're actually sending to combat zones and, the you know, the relative training they get beforehand. Um, things are fairly similar across the board. Um, so when it comes time to do those those joint missions, um, there wouldn't be, there weren't too many surprises. So there's um, a, the Brits were wild though. The Brits were wild. Those guys were going out on patrol and, you know, shorts and flip-flops. <laughs> <laughs> Combat flip-flops. Exactly. Exactly. Those, <laughs> those guys were, I mean, I say they're wild, but they were fun too. So, yeah. Well, the Brits tend to be Brits, Australians, Canadians tend to be pretty, pretty switched on soldiers. At, um, yeah. for the Canadians, we have such a teeny weeny little force and we don't have the high speed, low drag kit that the Americans do, except for our, yep. uh, special forces. Uh, they got a budget, but the general infantry, no, <laughs> no, yeah. it's bubble gum and duct tape, you know, and away we go. And yeah, you- pretty much. Hey, we made those jokes too. Cause it'd be funny. You know, the Marines would get a new piece of gear and, you know, the Army guys are over here like, oh, we we got that two years ago. That's just the leftovers they're finally giving to you. So, you know, do more with less. That's that's one of the many mottos of the Marine Corps. Well, I'd be surprised that um, uh, that General Army gets uh, the kit first before the the Marine Corps. That's that's a bit of a surprise to me. I thought that uh, the Marine Corps would get preference. You know, I mean, sometimes it seems that way. Maybe it's just but larger force, larger budget, um, you know, and the Marines, you know, put the budget elsewhere. They expect, you know, we're kind of expected to do more with, without the, 
we didn't need the latest and greatest equipment. We, we trained with what they gave us and that's what we were prepared to use. Now, uh, give me a bit of a picture of the Marines. Cause there's always conversations up here trying to figure out, okay, what are the Marines? Well, aren't the infantry guys that go on the boats? <laughs> Is that more yeah, or less so, it? Uh, I mean, yes. in in the, in the bigger <laughs> picture, but really that, you know, and from, from my point of view, that's just changed drastically with the entire war on terror, um, you know, being in the Middle East where, you know, amphibious warfare is just not a thing. Um, you know, we've adapted. And, and that's why you see, you know, the movies with the Navy SEALs, you know, those guys, yeah, they're a part of the Navy, but they're doing, you know, basically 99.9% land warfare. Um, same with the, Mar- same with the Marines. Um you know, it's funny. We have uh, MUs, MEU, uh, Marine Expeditionary Units, which those are traditionally the guys that go on floats, get, do a tour on a Navy ship, and go around. But I know guys that were on part of a MU unit that, I mean, they flew straight to Afghanistan and flew straight back. They never saw water. Um, yeah, you're not you're not storming so, the beaches. Yeah. No. At we eighty Wajima. No, no, it was not, not Iwo Jima, not, not, nothing like the Pacific campaign and anything like that. So, I mean, we just, I think that the force as a whole, particularly during my time then and prior to me, I, I was on active duty from 2008 to 2012. Uh, you know, the force just had to adapt to the, you know, the conditions in the world. And that was that the, the danger zones were in the Middle East where amphibious warfare is non-existent. Um, so the training adapted as such. It's interesting to me that uh, the Marine Corps has different cam patterns. Like you can see even in their combats, it's like, okay, well, that's mm-hmm. a Marine. Yeah, that's Marpat, not a regular yep. Army guy. That's uh, so foreign to our tiny little Canadian. It's like Army is Army, Air Force is Air Force, Navy is Navy. And yep. that's how, you know, and sometimes there's like if there's for some bizarre reason a navy person in the field it's like what are you doing here <laughs> but uh, they're, yeah. they're they're gonna wear the the same combats that we're wearing yeah and i think actually and recently you know i still have some guys most of the guys i served with or have, have long moved on to civilian life but i still have a couple of guys that are wrapping up their careers and um I think the Marine Corps in, in terms of when they're you know in the continental United States they're a hundred percent woodland marpat um you know when i was in we were like six months out of the year we wore the desert and six months out of the year woodlands um but i think they've gone 100 percent back to woodland at least while they're you know here in the united states um but i love those desert uniforms man after a deployment those things would get so faded and soft and salty as we would call it you know and and you could you could tell the difference between the guys who had deployed and the guys hatting on base just because of how faded their camis were and you know the, the the higher enlisted guys would get on to us like oh you need new camis those don't look good and i was like i'm gonna wear my salty camis whether you like it or not <laughs> pop quiz for you do you know who invented the digital camouflage you know i used to but i cannot i, I do not remember it this time that's funny that you asked that because I, I mean I'm, i used to be spend a lot of time you know just researching you know military history in my spare time but i cannot recall that off the top of my head we did so the 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 digital camo started we call it the relish pattern we're still wearing it mm-hmm. and um it's actually really effective in the dark green environment but not so much anywhere else uh, yeah but uh, and then the digital marpat came from that yeah yeah and then you know and then the army adopted their own digi version they've had a couple of them actually um that gray one was kind of horrendous because it didn't it didn't it was the fact of nowhere and even the army knew that so it was funny once i uh you know i went when i when i first left active duty i went right back to school um college and finished my bachelor's and got my master's degree and i was part of a student veteran organization there so really um through that student veteran organization is where I really started meeting guys from the other branches, army, Navy, air force. And it was, since we're all back in school and had that commonality, you know, we could joke about the, you know, the differences in the branches. And that was one of the things the army guys would joke about just how shitty their camo was. <laughs> well, the gray camo would be good for space force. I think, I guess. <laughs> you know, just, just keep it on the shelves. Don't get rid of it. Uh, if, if space force actually develops into something that that's perfect yeah. for them. That's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Right. Just, yeah. Blend into 
you know, uh, steel. <laughs> yeah, steel and the gray aliens if you run into them. Yeah, right. <laughs> the, the, the moon, the moonscape. <laughs> um, Flanders Fields and the Afghanistan withdrawal. Uh, yes. Geez, I could feel the energy shift. Just say, just just saying that. Uh, what mm-hmm. a shit show. Um, just horrendous. Uh, what? First of all, the Afghanistan withdrawal, the debacle that that was and continues to be. How did that affect you personally? So personally, I can only speak so much to this because it was kind of a joint decision between myself and the other officers that I took a step back uh, more so on our efforts, Flanders Field's efforts and, uh, you know, the Afghanistan evacuation because I'm the only officer who had served in Afghanistan. Uh, That being said, we had done, we did an interview a while back on Veterans Day um, with Fox News and they asked me some of the same questions and, you know, it it sucked. It didn't, uh, it did not sit well with me and just watching it on TV and you're like, well, you know, why the hell did we lose so many guys there and not just lose, you know, in terms of, um, you know, KIA, but lose in terms of, you know, the, we come home and we're not the same, you know, it's, you all that, that person that you are before you went, you're, you're, you're not that same person ever again. Um, so it, it did not sit well. It was unsettling, you know, and almost made me sick. And then, you know, at at some points of it, you know, seeing certain things, I'm like, well, good riddance, let's get out of there. But then it's like, no, we have that commitment. Yeah. You know, we can't just leave the guys that gave their lives and they're put their family's lives at risk. Um, you know, to support the United States and NATO efforts there um, because they did. I mean, and it's not, you know, it's not, that is their, and it's a hard, it's hard for a lot of Americans and other, other countries to understand because that is their home. They don't, they can't get on a plane and fly back home to a safe place, you know? So literally, um, you know, our founder Ben always says, you know, we talk about help. One of the things we're doing in the, you know, domestically in the United States, helping homeless veterans. Well, now we're literally trying to help countryless veterans. It is um, every military, whether it's an official motto or it's an unspoken one or an unwritten one, but to leave no one behind. And in Mm -hmm. Afghanistan, Canadians, Americans, and allied locals were left behind. It Mm -hmm. is the most disgusting Thing that can possibly happen after somebody has literally um, risked the lives of their children for you and you promise, I got you, I got your back, we'll, we'll be here to help, and then you just abandon them and leave them to die. Yeah. That's what happened. Exactly. That's exactly what happened. And, um, yeah, there, there, there could and should have been a different plan in place, but since there wasn't, that's why you've seen so many private organizations, many of which founded and uh, comprised of veterans themselves, military veterans themselves, are the guys that are putting the work in to get get those allies and other, you know, and other allied citizens out of, you know, what is no longer a country and certainly not a safe place to be. So how does that even work? There's guys, uh, more famous veterans like Tim Kennedy, who actually got mm-hmm. on a plane, flew in, infiltrated, and extracted, and got him out. How the fuck does a civilian do that without government support? You know, there's a there's a lot of gray area there. Um, in terms of what you're able to do, there was, you know, guys like him and other, um, particularly other, uh, you know, special forces veterans that have those connections, um, I wouldn't say there wasn't any government support because a lot of times there was some government support behind the scenes from individuals who felt obligated or not obligated, but felt it was their moral responsibility, um, you know, to kind of give guidance in those areas. And then, um, you know, some of those guys are good at raising funds. They knew where to go. They knew how to get in, you know, cross those lines. And, you know, the key mission was getting, you know, get <clears throat> getting these, uh, you know, American and other NATO force citizens out of the danger zone. And however we did that, um, you know, was, you know, there was numerous different avenues for doing that, whether it was direct flights out of Kabul, um, you know, caravans to surrounding countries, 
organ- organizing with other countries where um, these folks could seek asylum and, you know, have resettlement programs. Um, there's been, a, you know, at different times, there's been numerous countries who have stepped up and been like, hey, come here. You know, we've worked with guys that are now in the UK and the US. Australia, um, you know, that are just, just resettling. So the common goal in mind was just get them out of the danger zone. It has even to, early on, the Taliban was saying, just get them out of here. You know, how at, are you even getting on, like, how are these people even getting on planes? Because I mean, you have to be going in packing heavy. You, you, you can't be, <laughs> be going in, um, with pepper spray, you know, you gotta be yeah. packing heavy and, um, sorry for, people that aren't military that means lots of guns <laughs> lots yes. of guns and other kinds of weapons if you're not packing heavy for something like that so like you would need private planes a, a god-awful amount of funding uh, like do you know anything about the logistics like how they actually got in there loaded for bear you know honestly i don't that's you know i, I kind of stayed stayed to the side and uh, ran our domestic operations while our other guys were working, working with those guys. I I mean, I guess all I could really say to that is those guys, I mean, particularly the SF guys that had spent so much time over there and developed local connections. I believe they, and I don't mean just local to Afghanistan. I mean, local across the entire middle East. Um, You know, I believe they relied heavily on connections they had made, made there um, both, militarily and um you know through through contractual um organizations that were doing you know government contracting over there because there were a lot of government contractors that you know had you know the necessary equipment and supplies you know already in various locations across the middle east and my best guess would be that those uh, resources were utilized during the evacuation efforts right so probably didn't bring um probably didn't go in pack and heavy they probably picked up supplies when they got there at different caches probably so yeah that would be my my guess they probably left the u.s with nothing more than a backpack with a change of clothes you know yeah and then uh and kitted up when they got there still to be able to because it's a total wild west now and uh, to go Mm -hmm. there as a teeny weeny little unit trying to be clandestine you don't have any of the supports you don't have air you don't have uh, armor you don't have any of it so you sure don't have artillery uh so you're just going in there um oh just so covert i couldn't even imagine what that would be like yeah and a lot of it i do know you know was was a guessing game um you know there were at different times um you know, the Taliban was actually saying, hey, just get them out of here and we won't do anything. That that happened for a couple of weeks. Um, a lot of guys were, you know, a lot of a lot of folks were able to get evacuated during that time. That changed, um, you know, different through, through different um, use of, let's say, high technology. Um, you know, we were able to monitor, um, able to monitor where Taliban checkpoints were, ways to navigate around it. And I know, I mean, there were times that, the, you know, resources in terms of, um, you know, men going in, you know, they were going in unarmed because it, you know, you couldn't go in armed. You'd, you'd be shot on spot. So, um, you know, literally risking their lives unarmed to go in and drive a truck to evacuate folks out of a danger zone to somewhere where they can get to safety. Um, you know, there were, there were guys that had spent significant time in, in the air, in those regions um, throughout the 20 years, the the U S and other Ford NATO forces were there um, that felt that they were obligated to do that and went back to do that. Yeah. The, um, and the idea that private citizens uh, that veterans had to do it instead of active duty, that there was, is just unbelievable. Yep. Uh, Absolutely. Unbelievable. Um, moving on to veteran support that is provided mm-hmm. by, by Flanders fields, what sort of supports are provided for, for veterans? So, I mean, I kind of hit on this and, but I'll go into more detail. We really, um, anything and everything is kind of the motto we're, we're, we're going by. If we don't have the resource in place, um, we'll lean on one of our, another organization that we're developing partnerships with, or we'll, stop we won't stop until we find an answer to that problem um 
but kind of the more formal or structured approach that we're taking is we we've developed kind of three three program areas that we're focused on um the first of those being a veteran advocate program and that's where we understand as veterans that veterans are more likely to talk to other veterans um and by talk i mean open up about problems um you know not you know, they feel more comfortable. So we have veterans, um, you know, starting with our own staff and we're building out, you know, a a further larger network of veterans who have uh, not only have served, but have likely gone through some struggles with with trauma or addiction or homelessness or joblessness, um, you know, anything in those areas that allows them to connect with those active veterans in need. Um, and those are our front lines. So we're developing that program out. And then Flanders as an organization is supporting those advocates um, in terms of connecting the resources. But the Veteran Advocate Program is in place um, so that we can build that trust with those veterans in need. Because one of the big problems we face is veterans like myself are hard-headed and we do not like to ask for help. Yeah. So it helps to have somebody on the other end of that phone or on the other side of the table that can relate to you. Um, so that, that's a big thing that we're doing too. Um, the, the, the second kind of, um, prong of that, of, of that approach is our kind of what we're, we're our crisis management. Um, so this will be, if we get a call, you know, somebody is active in addict, like a, very active in addiction, you know, on the verse of a verge of hurting themselves or somebody else, somebody who was suicidal, um, somebody who is in jail for something, um, that they may have done that was, you know, instigated and caused by their trauma. Um, our, our crisis management, you know, that's where we are. We're going in firsthand and helping to mitigate the crisis, whether that be um, get them into a mental health facility, get them into a detox facility, um, get them, you know, out of jail and into um you know, into a, some type of housing situation where they're safe and on, we can get them onto another program. Um, but, um, that's really, you know, we're, we're building that out in terms of, um, and this is where we're kind of, we're also relying on our civilian resources, people that have the expertise, particularly in mental health and addiction, um, to, 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 to mitigate those crisis situations so that we can get them into really the third prong approach, the third prong of our approach, which would be, um, you know, our clean living and ongoing support. So we've started to work on getting, you know, building out some veteran communities. Um, and we're doing that in conjunction with a lot of veteran courts, which are, um, those are limited. Not every, not every jurisdiction in, in the United States where we're operating has a veterans court, but there are a lot of veterans in drug courts or DUI courts, um, you know, that may be required to live in a sober living environment and, um, you know, have other, other structure in place. Um, so we're working with communities to build out some of these um, types of facilities where they're monitored, but they're also with like individuals. And we want those veterans um, to be the leaders of those communities. We want, you know, cause leadership is just a common trait amongst veterans. We are comfortable being in leadership positions. So, if they're going to be a leader in their drug court community, we want, we want to help them develop that and then give them the skills, you know, beyond that program to be happy and a productive member of society as they see fit. So that's when, you know, we have uh, career coaches, job search experts, um, you know, just different things like that to help them get set up long-term. And then personally, the last aspect of that is me seeing one of those guys, or multiple guys go full circle from where they were calling in in a crisis situation or calling into one of our veteran advocates where they did not, they just were in a place where they didn't know what to do. They've got bills and no way to pay them. You know, they're drinking too much. They've got legal issues that when they, we bring them full circle and they come back and they become one of those veteran advocates, you know, giving back the same thing that they had received, you know, earlier on in the process. So that's really the the 360 view of what we're doing. And it's beautiful. And what you'll often find is that those that are in the helper positions are people that have been through the meat grinder themselves. And it is there's such efficacy in finding purpose. When you leave the big green machine, um, 
you go from a place where you have such purpose and you feel like you're part of something big and important. And then when you transition out, it's impossible to ever replace that or the sense of adrenaline or, or any of it. Um, and, and then you're in this hell because you know that you can't go back and keep serving because you know that you're cooked and you just can't do that anymore. Uh, and yet you, here you are in the civilian world where you can't get any of the good stuff but you can't go back because of the bad stuff. So you're in this limbo. Your only choice really is to find a sense of purpose that, I mean, you'll never replace it, but um, any kind of sense of purpose. So I see people at the Veterans Association Food Bank. We have two Veterans Food Banks here in, uh, in, in, in our city, uh, another one in Edmonton, and it's, it's, it's growing. Um, but we, we see people volunteering 20, 30, 40 hours a week at these places because it gives them a sense of contribution and purpose. And with that, it's why I do this show. Uh, this is what keeps me level is doing this show, a sense of contribution and purpose. So with that, whatever that is for a person, um, do it. And there's been people that because of this show are now peer helpers. They're volunteers. Uh, they were inspired to do it because of this show. So God bless you for, for everything that you do and all the lives that you saved, Tyler. Yeah. And same to you. And I mean, I know you can relate to this too, is that for, at least for me, I didn't realize how important it was for my personal recovery to be doing that until it just kind of (laughs) organically happened. Yeah. And it's like, all of a sudden I realized I've helped several guys out and I feel like I'm doing something, you know, with my life. Whereas you know, I'm, I'm 34 years old and for a long time, you know, I was 22 when I deployed to Afghanistan. And for a long time, I had this thought in my head, like, man, I did that shit when I was 22. Like that's the best I'll ever be. But no, it's not, you know, it's not, I'm just, it's just a, I'm coming at it from, I'm coming at life from a different angle now. And you know, that's, it's, it's, it's just as important and being able to, you know, see other guys come through a hardship you know, come out on the other side and smile and make their friends and families proud and then give it back to somebody else. I mean, that it, you, you can't beat that. It's just like when I was training a junior Marine, you know, for something that, you know, to get a promotion, helping them do what they needed to do to get promotion, uh, promoted to become an NCO. And then they asked me to pin on their corporal chevrons. It's that same feeling, you know, you help somebody achieve their goals. And that's just a feeling it's, it's hard to describe in words and it's, it's very hard to replace, but it can be replicated in, 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 in other senses. It can. And uh, I, like yourself, I didn't realize that I was doing this for myself. And I just started doing it because I saw a gap yeah. and I thought I'm going to fill that gap. Um, then I realized uh, 30, 40, 50 shows in, oh, I need to do this. This is, <laughs> this is for me too. So, so here we are. And um, one of the challenges, though, is that we have, and I know you've seen them, uh, we have people that aren't ready to help because they haven't got their own poop in a group. And if you try to be the helper too early before you've got yourself sorted, that's a catastrophe. I, I'm sure you've seen that. Of course. we Yeah, we have seen that. And, um, you know, because we a lot of times we do we we get requests um, from people that want to um, that, that would like to volunteer. We're all for that, you know, become one of those veteran advocates, help out in any way. Um, but the big thing, you know, but they're also telling us about the you know their current circumstances, and you can hear the struggle in their story and in their voice. Yeah. And so you know, we're kind of like, okay, well yeah, man, let's, you know, we'd be glad to have you, um, you know, help out some other, other veterans, but let's look at what we can do for you first. And so you kind of approach it like, um, it's a learning situation and, um, for, for, for that individual, um, like, Hey, let us show you what we can do by helping you out. And then you can pass that along. So, um, and then another thing you made me think of about that too, is there's also a lot of guys that, um, you know, particularly, um, from a substance abuse perspective that just aren't ready to receive that help either. Absolutely. Um, so that's, that's kind of a, a, you know, we have to handle that. I was, I was that person, you know, for a long time I was, um, you know, I didn't want, I didn't want to put the bottle down. I, I liked the way it made me feel and I wasn't ready to put it down until I woke up one day and I was like, all right, I'm done with this. You know, if I can move on. And that's what I had to do. But, um, the, you know, some, some people just aren't there yet. So all we can do is 
let them know that, hey, we're right here when you're ready. Um, you know, there's some organizations out there that take that approach and it works. Um, we stay in contact with them. Um, and when they're ready, they'll let us know. So that old saying of um, the only true wisdom is in knowing that you know nothing. Uh, otherwise stated, um, knowing that you don't know what you don't know. You don't know. You don't want to know what you don't know. You, you don't know you, what you, you don't, don't know. know. And it's the same yeah. with healing. You know, um, uh, people like, no, I'm good. I'm good. Dude, you're not good. <laughs> you're not no. good. I'm okay. I got this. No, no, you don't. Uh, but you can see it so clearly when you've already been through the meat grinder yourself and you're on the other side. And when somebody's saying that they're good, uh, no, nope, sorry, you're yeah. not. But you can't tell them. They've, you know, you can suggest to them, but uh, they don't want to hear it. They can't hear it because they don't know what they don't know. And they're not ready to admit that, um, not in, in part, they're not ready but also they don't have the tools to see the state that they're actually in. They can, they look in the mirror and they can't see their reflection. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. You you can look in the mirror and not see a reflection. That's a very good way to put it. And you know, uh, I, ju- I just made ben it up. Owen, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Ben Owen, our president. You know, he'll he'll laugh because he walked this road with me exactly and other veterans, which really put the idea for Flanders Fields in his head. Um, but he walked it with me and you're exactly right. Like I can see him now two years ago looking at me and me being like, yeah, man, I'm good. And he was like, yeah, sure you are. All right. <laughs> you'll be back. You'll, you'll call me back. And then sure enough, I did now, you know, here we are a couple of years later, you know, passing that along to, to other veterans, which is, which is really the, the big picture. That's, that's what's important. People will say all the time, I'm fine. And uh, fine is an acronym. Do you know what? Fucked up, uh, yeah, insecure, fucked up, insecure, neurotic, neurotic and emotional. And emotional. <laughs> yeah. I'm fine. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Fine. Fine. No, you're yeah. not. That, no, you're not. I mean, you might, as, you might as well just spell it out when you say fine, because if somebody tells me they're fine, that's exactly where my mind goes. Fucked up, irrational. Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're absolutely not. Yeah. I've got um, I got a friend right now that I'm trying to figure out what to do. Because he thinks he's fine, and he's got all these big ideas. I'm like, oh, you're so far from fine. <laughs> you're spiraling, mm-hmm. and you can't see it, and I can't even suggest it to him. I'm uh, like, fuck. You know, so I'm trying to figure out how to navigate it. It ain't easy. Unfortunately, yeah. sometimes you got to let him hit the wall. And then be the it guy, is, you know? be ready with the spatula to scrape him off. Yeah, you know, I mean, somebody can be drowning in the deep end, and you can toss a float to them, but whether they grab it or not, that's that's still up to them. I mean, we can toss them lots of floats, but you know, that person still has to be willing. And you know, well, I, you know, person like not not to get into too specific, but you know, a guy I'm working with now um, in a drug court program found himself in some trouble, and he was calling me concerned that you know we weren't going to work with him anymore because he had fucked up something, and it's like no. We're not going to stop working with you unless you stop working with us. As long as you keep calling us and answering your phone, we're going to be here. So, I mean, that's just, that's how it's going to be. I mean, we are not going to fault you for being human. And that goes back to right what you said, you know, early on about, you know, military kicking guys out for uh, dealing with their trauma the only way they see how. you know, don't be a dick and Flanders <laughs> is not going to be a dick. Don't be a dick. <laughs> like, no, dude. Like, if I tried, if I, if, if I attempted to dis, dis, you know, exclude somebody for making a mistake, I, that would be the most neurotic and, you know, uh, thing I, I could ever do because I have made more mistakes than I can count. And there was always somebody there, you know, with a handout to, to pick me back up. And that's just, we're taking that same approach with our organization. No, you, you, you can see the accident coming. You can see the train wreck, and all you can do is sit there with the ambulance and your first aid kit and wait. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because you can't help them till they stop kicking. And yeah, you hope it doesn't get too worse for them. But some yeah. people, it, 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 and some people, it has to. Yeah. Um, it, you know, you hear the term rock bottom, and everybody's is different, and all that. Well, I mean, yeah, that's true. Um, but we, we still, you know, you know, we still 
don't want to see anybody do more damage to themselves. And everybody's um, got a different we'll perception of that rock yeah. bottom too. When I quit drinking, um, I wasn't at rock bottom. It wasn't this great mm-hmm. big, holy shit, this has wrecked my life circumstance. You know, I wasn't uh, curled in a ball of my own puke uh, on a subway. Um, it was just, but I saw myself getting there. You know, mm-hmm. I, I caught it three weeks in. I was on this three-week bender that I didn't even realize I was on because it was like just, it's two beers a night, it's three beers a night, and it just grew. And all of a sudden, I'm at seven. I'm like, oh, fuck. Mm -hmm. (laughs) How did that happen? And um, uh, it was actually Magic Mushrooms that uh, helped uh, help me see like they, they talk to you it's pretty cool uh yeah. but uh, they helped me see the the big picture and and the truth of alcohol in my life anyway and that yeah you sure do like that glass of scotch but here's the price that you pay and it ain't the 80 bucks for the bottle you know mm-hmm. it's uh it, it's a lot more expensive than that and yeah i'm right i, I i'm right there with you on that because yeah. um although yeah, i do miss I, it I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> I definitely been I had definitely been at lower points in my life where alcohol had been a major contributing factor and lots of negative ways. But when oh, yeah. I finally put it down, I wasn't at a rock bottom. I was just like, for me, it was more or less I I saw the reality of the impact it had in my life. Yeah. It's not like that for everybody, of course, and I understand that, but what it was doing to me and it was time to time to move on and you know flanders fields was starting to get in the works and i just that was a big reason i decided i I needed to get sober and stay sober because if i wanted this organization to succeed which i immensely do i had to be sober and amongst many other reasons there's there's a thousand of them but well um yeah i just I, i agree you know it that 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 switch just flipped it really did for anybody listening, if you've ever had one of those nights like I have, like almost every night, where you just can't get to sleep because your brain goes to every regret, every stupid thing that you've ever done that you wish you hadn't done, and you're and you're uh, trying to get to sleep, but you're like, ooh, ah, oh, I can't believe I did that. Um, I bet you that alcohol or some sort of substance was involved for 90% of those what the hell was I thinking moments. And, um, that, that was it w- for me. And that's one of the things that's able to keep me from the urge. Cause oh, I still have the urge has been two years and I want to drink so damn bad, but, uh, it's like, all right, well, if I desire that drink, then I know I shouldn't have one. If I really, 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 yeah. really like it, then I know I can't have it. You know, exactly. <laughs> You're exactly right. Yeah. I think on that same note, I mean, Sure, I've made plenty of dumb decisions sober, but they pale in comparison to the things that I look back and cringe on, you know, the things I did under the influence. (laughs) Well, it's why, like, when a bunch of soldiers get together and um, uh, talk about, you know, whatever the great stories were, yeah, alcohol is always involved. You know, all all the, because the best stories are the stupidest stories of the craziest shit. And I was like, oh, yeah, that was a whole lot of liquid courage. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that yeah, was, the shit that happened in the barracks when you yeah. know we were all 12 14 beers deep and it's like <laughs> looking back looking back on it i'm like man like <laughs> how did we survive <laughs> those are the you took the words right out of my mouth but uh yeah. we have to come back to the reality of that too how did we survive a lot of us didn't That's true. And, and we got to remember that Right. And yeah, it was laughs and giggles and uh, cherished memories of stupidity and barely surviving, but a lot didn't. A um, friend of mine froze to death in a snowbank, you know, uh, Mitch Calder, God bless him. And, uh, and there's a lot of other stories, you know, uh, got on the motorbike drunk, uh, crashed dead. Um, so many. Uh, another friend of mine killed a woman downtown Calgary. Uh, he's never recovered from that. He was drinking and driving, you know? So yeah, it's, it's the best stories, but it's also the worst stories. It is the worst stories imaginable. And it's not worth it. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, I'm fortunate that it didn't get worse for me and I don't have it. You know, my stories are one, my, my bad, my worst stories, um, are ones that I, I can live with and I can't, and I have recovered from, but I can, uh, you know, sympathize with somebody that, 
you know, got drunk and got behind the wheel and injured or killed somebody. Cause I know, I also know guys that have done that. And I just, I think, you know, I think, I, I don't know how I would deal, how I would live with myself. I just don't. And a lot don't. Um, one mm. friend that I'm, I'm thinking of, I mean, this was in the nineties. He never recovered, not even close. And he had such a bright future ahead of him. And, um, he's never recovered from it and it breaks my damn heart and and the type of guy that everybody loves too. Everybody loves this guy, mm-hmm. but, um, one moment and what was the common, uh, denominator booze, booze right? Of course, booze and erect his fucking life. Mm-hmm. You know, all these years of suffering and guilt as a result. Yeah. And, you know, I'm glad we're kind of talking about that too, because, that is one of the uh, booze and other drugs. I think booze maybe more so because that's my personal experience and because yeah. it's legal and it's legal in the military. It's um, and encouraged. And it really hey, is. buy um, that man around, you know? Yeah, it is. Absolutely. And that's, you know, so often the, I mean, it's the first place we are trained to turn to celebrate, to you know, drown your sorrows. It's the, you know, it's just, it's that constant go-to. Um, so when we experience trauma, it becomes a default. That's where you go. It's the decompression mechanism. It is regardless of what the situation is. It's the decompression mechanism. Well, that was a rough day. Let's go for a drink. Is it, was it a one shot or a two shot day? You know, Mm -hmm. and, um, when you're using it as your medicine, because like, Oh, what a fricking day. I need a drink. Uh Oh, you know, and it may, may may not be a problem today or next week, but if you, if, mm-hmm. it, it will be at some point, you know? Yeah, for sure. And it, it's kind of, you know, my, my story with that when, when I first, when I first got back from my combat deployment, so the unit I deployed with was not my parent command. There was a group of about eight of us from my parent command that chopped over. Cause like the request came down from way up that they needed additional Marines. So when the eight of us got back to our parent command, we kind of stuck close to each other. And when we first got back and we're all in the barracks every night, we're hanging out and drinking together and we're just celebrate. We're celebrating cause we're back and we're safe. And you know, we weren't allowed to drink for seven months Um, But then, you know, looking back on it, like slowly by slowly, we each kind of drifted in our own directions. And it turned out we're all just drinking by ourselves in our rooms. And, you know, I can look back 12 years later and see that progression, but I could not see that at the time. No. Tyler, how can somebody find uh, your organization? And first for your area of your AOR (laughs) is your area of operations is just the United States, right? Yeah. We have not set that parameter. Um, we were we will be we'll be open. We will um, we're open to any request that comes in through our website, flandersfield.org. Um, there's a link on there where you can donate or give or request assistance. We're in the process of updating that so that will be uh, separate avenues for each of those. Um, but we do have a team that is organizing those and and, and disseminating their requests as they come in um, to the, the the appropriate faculties. Um, but the best way to reach us is on there. We're also, we also have a heavy, um, you know, social media, um, presence, uh, LinkedIn is a big one. Uh, go follow us on LinkedIn. We're always posting things, you know, relevant articles or photos or things that, um, you know, uplifting or things to, um, educate the general public on the issues that we're helping veterans deal with, whether it be, you know, suicide prevention, uh, substance abuse, you know, anything. Um, we have a big presence and a huge following on LinkedIn. Um, also Facebook and Instagram. Um, so yeah, if you're interested, um, in finding out more about us, flandersfield.org is our website, but also follow us on any of those other platforms. Um, as yeah, you know, daily we're, we're, we've got a team, you know, staff that's posting things that, um, you know, we get a lot of feedback on and that's how we connect with a lot of our, our veteran community and find other resources and connect with other veteran organizations that, you know, we now kind of lean on each other, um, you know, to help co-support veterans depending on what their needs are. What's the relationship between FlandersFields.org and uh, Black Rifle? And uh, just for clarification, not the coffee guys. <laughs> right, not the coffee guys. So um, our other two officers, uh, Ben O and Robert Coleman, Black Rifle is their uh, digital marketing and uh, advertising firm. 
um, and they focus primarily on the firearms and other protective services industry. Um, so they are the owners of that company and officers of Flanders Fields. Essentially, Black Rifle um, is how we are able to do Flanders Fields. If that, you know, that's their for-profit company. Um, but also a lot of what, you know, a lot of what Flanders Fields does is backed by Black Rifle in conjunction, you know, with the, the general public and, uh, you know, uh, public corporation, private corporation funding that we're getting. Um, Black Rifle is really, um, what allowed Flanders Fields to be, to be founded, you know, because it, they, they provided those initial resources and continue to, uh, match donations, make donations. But, um, that is, you know, it's a separate entity, uh, run by the same, same folks, um, and allows us to do what we do. Uh, so they don't sell firearms and ammunition and all that? They do not, no. Okay, so they, there's um, another black rifle company that does that. They, they, they typically, they, they do all the digital marketing targeted advertising for different firearms uh, companies, firearms, ammunition, uh, personal protection. Um, uh, ben and Robert are great with, you know, digital data and uh, targeted advertising. So, um, they go to these guys and they help them get their products in front of the appropriate consumers. And a lot of times that is the veteran community as well. So, okay. Well, uh, thanks so much for being on here today, Tyler. I really appreciate it. It's been a long time coming. We've been trying to coordinate this. So, uh, great to have you on and thank you for your continued service. Absolutely, brother. I appreciate your time and, uh, you know, appreciate what you do with this podcast and everything. You know, we, we all got that common goal in mind, which is we want to see our fellow veterans succeed in life. So we'll keep doing what we're doing. Hoorah. Please stay on the line. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders, even those Marines. That's Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in. Now I've got a favor to ask you. And I know everybody asks for the same favor, but it's really, really important. If you can help, do your little bit by going to Apple Podcasts, leaving a rating and a comment. That would be awesome. Also, on your favorite podcast platform, whether that be Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, or whatever floats your boat and blows your hair back, please click follow and if there's an option there for rating please do so and this is why every time you click like leave a rating leave a comment what happens is that it makes it easier for other people to find this podcast the help that you can't find doesn't help at all so help other people find this so that they can help themselves thank you thank you thank you and as always share share like the sugar bear because sharing is caring Today's episode is brought to you by Global Specialized Safety Incorporated. You can find them at globalssinc.com. That's globalssinc.com for all of your safety needs. Safe by choice, not by chance. Global Specialized Safety is veteran-owned and operated.